Episode number 233 of Monster Kid Radio with a band out of Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. They're the Lurids, and this is from their album Surfing One Hell of a Wave. The song is Riding the Black Ash. You can find them at thelurids.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for the podcast. You're listening to Monster Kid Radio, where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Welcome to the show. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and I'm excited because we are talking about a Bela Lugosi film this time around on Monster Kid Radio. That's right, one of the patron saints, one of the patron saints proper of Monster Kid Radio, one of the big names, one of the actors that I adore. I cannot get enough Bela, and I can't get enough of the movie, The Return of the Vampire. From 1943, directed by Lou Landers, and we're going to get into that with a new voice here on Monster Kid Radio. Ron Nelson. He's joining me to discuss this film. It's one of my favorites. I have the impression that it's one of his favorites as well. And you'll get to hear that conversation here in a little bit. Also, we have some feedback, and we'll get into that here in a little bit as well. Also, might give you a rundown on some things coming up here in the Portland, Oregon area that I'm going to be at, which means Monster Kid Radio is going to be there, which means I'm going to have my recorder. So if you'd like to meet up, maybe chat a little bit on or off mic, well, I'm always game. But like I said before that, we're going to start discussing The Return of the Vampire with Ron Nelson right after this. It staggers the imagination. War between the planets. Rockets on my signal. Countdown on my out. Are we trapped up here in space? There she is. Good old Gamma One. I want to fight it with my bare hands. Pull out! Retro! Go on in. That's an order. War between the planets. It's not a matter of days, but hours. God help us. Unbelievable. Fantastic. Unknown planet heading for collision with Earth. War Between the Planets, Great Family Film Fair, rated G. This is the world of the future. One step beyond your wildest imagination and your strangest dreams, where science has gone berserk with grotesque experiments in the ungodly art of flesh fusion. She's being prepared. Soon she will be ready for the great moment when she and I will become one person and my flesh will absorb hers. The fusion of male and female. Living humans drained of imperfections and grafted together to form a new and terrifying race. The incredible bi-sapien race of the wild, wild planet. Where the slightest error becomes the mutilated refuse of mankind. 
where success is a super being. A man-made race of automatons programmed to overpower man himself. These are the invaders from the wild, wild planet. Female form destructive units of invincible strength. Awesome ability to disappear into thin air. Only a handful of men stand in the way of these mass-produced monsters, fighting desperately to uncover the diabolic mystery of their creation, locked in the malignant mind of one man. My mind! You could never comprehend. You will never comprehend. Insane master of the wild, wild planet. Excitement blows you into a world of madness. Danger engulfs you in a flood of cold fear. And terror catapults you through a galaxy of horrors. This is the wild, wild planet. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. of infinity, a gigantic astral body hurtles towards the earth to terrorize and seal the doom of an unprepared mankind. How can we prevent it? A job for the army. They've got the guided missiles, the nuclear warheads. Intercept and destroy it before it strikes. design, this death-dealing meteor plunges into the depths of the sea. And in its place emerges an awesome monster such as human eyes have never seen. Unless stopped somehow, others will land and suck the earth dry of all electrical and atomic energy resources. Now, you're the only one that knows, and you will never tell. A metallic vampire stalking the earth. Its purpose, to drain it of its energy, every last bit of vitality. Cronus, absorbing all the dynamic strength of this universe to make him so powerful as to withstand any force. (laughs) 
Monster Kid Radio listeners, I'd like to welcome to the show a Monster Kid, a fan of these types of movies, as well as a fan of, well, if you follow him on Facebook, many different types of really, really good films. Welcome to the show, Ron Nelson. How's it going, sir? Uh, pretty good. How are you doing tonight? I, I, I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk to another listener, bringing a new voice to Monster Kid Radio, and to talk about a movie that you and I were just talking about off mic a little bit about how underrated it is. We're talking about The Return of the Vampire. Night, I will take Nikki away. Your soul will wander through the night and you will never find where her body rests. What a movie. Yeah, the Lou Landers, the most prolific director in Hollywood history, probably. <laughs> he did a lot, didn't he? He's done a lot of movies, but uh, this movie's great. I would even say it's better than a lot of the Universal movies of the time, like as far as production value and uh, wow. atmosphere. Yeah, I, I really love it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bold statement, sir. Yeah, well, I mean, once you get past like the Wolfman, you know, which I think is the high watermark of the universal, the forties, um, mm-hmm. you kind of get almost, you know, they're a little more kid friendly or this one. Uh, I don't know. There, there's a lot going on in this one that I, I think is really cool. And I, I love the sets and stuff. Oh, so. wow. Yeah. The production design is amazing, isn't it? I'm a sucker for fog in general. <laughs> and there's a lot of fog in this movie. And, uh, especially at the beginning and it's used so well. Yeah. It's like, what well, you see, you see Andreas come up, and uh, yeah, it's just completely. And the movie um, just throws you right into it, too. It's just like it just begins. You know, dra- uh, I almost called him Dracula. No, he essentially, Universal's going to sue. Be careful. <laughs> he almost is Dracula, but uh, he he's pretty much just you know already attacking a woman within like half a second into the movie. So. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it doesn't waste any time. Yeah, it gets right into it. Before we get right into it, though, I have to ask, how long have you loved these types of movies? I've loved these movies you know, pretty much since I was seven years old. I was never really allowed to watch like slasher movies or anything. Mm-hmm. My parents didn't want me to watch gore, but um, they basically they rented uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Monster Squad for me on <laughs> Halloween night. Oh, that'll do it. That was a hell of a double feature, for sure. I mean, triple feature. Yeah. Sure. I was never the same since. I started checking out those uh, Crestwood House monster books that you oh, see in the uh, man the libraries. One by one, I would go through every library in the county until I found all of them. My brother. <laughs> <laughs> they were kind of like our generation's uh, famous monsters, in a way. Yeah, I could definitely see that. That, That's very similar to my upbringing. I've talked about this before, where I wasn't allowed to watch modern monster movies either. But if it was black and white, for some reason or other, it was okay. So I was able to experience and learn a little bit about these monster movies through Crestwood House books, through whatever I can get my hands on. And, I mean, it really did me in. It kind (laughs) of made me who I am now. Well, we kind of 
you know, had to almost get what we got, you know. I mean, I guess we we had it better than people who had to wait for the movies to come on television, you know. But even video stores, they didn't really carry these movies. So I'd have to beg my parents to take me to video stores, like, all around the county just to get a copy of The Wolfman. I would see these movies years in between one another because they were so hard to find. And then... uh I started just saving up my allowance money, and I would save my allowance money up for a month to buy, like, The Wolfman. The first one I ever bought was Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, actually. And uh, I fell right into the marketing of that because uh, my my justification was, why get Frankenstein or Wolfman when I can get both of them? (laughs) And and I bought the movie Blind, and I loved it. Now, every now and then, I still get that, that song that's sung. In the end of the movie where uh, Talbot's sitting there and uh, they start singing that song about life and death. I'll get that stuck in my head randomly. I, I think you just did it for me, too. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> It'll start yodeling. <laughs> no, that's excellent. You know, these movies, it's, it's kind of odd now to me to think about how hard it must have been to find some of these movies on VHS. When I was growing up, I worked at a couple of video stores because that's what movie geeks did back then. Right. And I would order these movies and use my employee discount to take home the latest Universal Classic. And, oh, cool. you know, I'd have to wait about a week or so to, to get the movies. But it is odd to think that there was a period there at video stores where they didn't have all the mummy movies, where they didn't, didn't have all the Dracula films. Well, now we, we are lucky. We get those legacy collections that just has all of them on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how I was able to see the lat, the later ones, because uh, my video store, they had the mummy, they had Dracula, they had like the the first ones in every series. They had the Bride of Frankenstein. Thank goodness, because I don't know what my life would be without that movie, because that's my favorite movie of all time. Really? Oh yes, I adore that movie. I often say about the Bride of Frankenstein that that movie has everything that you could ever want from a film. It's funny, it's sad, it's got the gothic horror elements, it, it's got everything, everything you could ever want. So um, it just showed me that a horror movie could be like more than just a movie about chills and stuff. You can have so many other elements in it. Well, 1935 was a good year for film. Oh, goodness, yes. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> including, I, I think, the first uh, horror movie that Lou Landers did. He did The Raven. Uh, that year, which I I didn't know because he used a different name on that. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> he did The Raven. So he's worked with Bella before. He, mm-hmm. he knows him. 35 was a good year. And Lou Landers, you mentioned earlier, having a very prolific career. Quite a few movies listed. If you look him up on the Internet and you do a little bit of research, wow, this man did a ton of work. He had about 200 credits to his name almost. Um it's insane. You know, every time I think of him, it's really funny because I, I don't automatically think of the director. I think of the character named after him in The Howling. Mm. If you've ever seen The Howling, the uh, the news reporter That's in that right. movie is named after him. This is Lou Landers with <laughs> KDHD News, I, I think. And they use this character again in Gremlins, actually. So uh, Gremlins and The Howling are technically in the same universe. <laughs> I like to believe they are. <laughs> the Dante-verse, if you will. The Dante-verse. There you go. <laughs> you're, no, you're right. I totally spaced on that. I had... Wow. Well, it's been a while yeah. since I've seen The Howling, so well, I'll put it back on the to-watch list. Howling's so. fun. Oh, it's great, isn't it? It's a lot of fun. I've got the, I'm have got actually looking at the poster right now. I've got it in my 
living room. <laughs> Eventually, as I got older in my teens, I was able to uh, reach uh, branch out into other monster movies, but mm-hmm. I never liked them as much as the Universal movies. Those were the ones that really kind of stuck with me. Well, they're kind of the high watermark. When you think of classic horror, you think of Frankenstein, Pride of Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman. Well, they are to uh, horror as like Superman and Batman are to superheroes. You, you really don't get better than that. It's true. Like, this is what everything else strives to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman are like Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman. <laughs> it's the big three, you know, uh, of horror. They really um, are. They're, they're the, the trinity. The unholy three. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> You, you don't get any better than that. And I eventually, you know, uh, I got into the RKO movies. Mm-hmm. And I like those a lot, too. But those are a different animal entirely. Um, you don't really have monsters in those. Those are more psychological. So I went back and forth throughout the years. And I, I was kind of a snob, actually, growing up. I would not watch Hammer films. Really? I, I no. don't know if we can continue this conversation. I got around to it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. We're good. I mean, now I love Hammer. <laughs> yeah, Hammer's like my thing. I actually discovered your podcast through your other podcast, mm. 1951 Down Place, because uh, I love Hammer. I just randomly, I was thinking, I wonder if anybody's podcast about the vampire lovers. I can't be the only one who likes this movie. So, <laughs> And I do. It's a guilty pleasure of mine. Heart, a film of tender love and the screams of vampire death. Now, there's a powerful motion picture that rips at your emotions. The Vampire Lovers. It brings you beautiful love and vampire evil, and it'll drive your mind through a thousand terror-filled moments. You'll hear whispers of warm desire become shrieks of chilling death. You'll taste the deadly passion of the Vampire Lovers and become a slave of the damned. You'll discover the sweet embrace and the deadly kiss of blood nymphs who refuse to die. The Vampire Lovers. It's in color, and it had to be rated R. Under 17 must be accompanied by a parent or adult guardian. Don't miss The Vampire Lovers. Basically, with Hammer, this is funny because I didn't like them because I thought, oh, these are just the pretenders, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they were remakes, but oh, not really. Okay. And then when I finally got around to watching um, Horror of Dracula, I'm like, no, this is awesome. Uh, why did I ever think that? <laughs> you know? But I was a little snob. I, I only liked the Universal movies, and uh, those were like my thing, and I, I obsessed over them. My parents hated it because uh, that's all I ever talked about growing up was um, Wolfman and Dracula and about it. Wow. And dinosaurs, of course. Every kid likes dinosaurs. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but, but, it's a given, know, right? Yeah, the Ray Harryhausen movies. Uh, I was obsessed with those, too, so... Nice. Yeah, I said earlier, my brother, I, I yeah, I'm right there with you. That's I feel the kinship, sir. <laughs> well, oh, and of course Godzilla. Well, yeah. That goes without saying, because it's like as a monster kid, but also a dinosaur kid, what's better than Godzilla? Because he's both. He's a monster <laughs> and a dinosaur. So mm-hmm. Yeah, but I obsessed over that. And of course, like any kid, I used to, you know, set up my toy cars and then i didn't have a godzilla toy but i had a big t-rex toy and i used it to crush things and i pretended it was godzilla so it's the t-rex from jurassic park masquerading as godzilla uh 
you know, I love that I've had people on the show from an older generation than myself. It sounds like you're a little bit younger than me, but we all still find so much to love about these classic monster movies. I know a lot of people sometimes say that, you know, you're not a real monster kid unless you grew up in the 50s and 60s, but I don't agree with that at all. I think that any age person can be a monster kid and it's just the love of the movies that unites us not when we watch them but just the love of these films and how we interact with them and make them part of who we are oh yeah it's like um this the fire inside of Mm -hmm. you it starts at a very young age and you never really you never quote unquote grow out of it i would never want to um it's a really good feeling and it's hard to find other people that are really into it too um most people only watch new movies, so it's like, hey, watch this old movie, and most people kind of groan, you know? So it really is kind of like an exclusive little club that we, we need to keep alive forever and make sure these movies never get forgotten. Not that I think they will, because they're too they're way too iconic, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, especially right. something like the Universal films, which, again, when you think classic horror, you think of those titles, but that's not to say there weren't other really good monster movies coming out from other studios, other groups, other companies, like the movie we're going to talk about today. Yeah, uh, Return yeah, of the Vampire. A lot of cool ones from other studios, too, that kind of get passed over a little bit. Mm-hmm. Some of the public domain ones like that have fallen into the public domain, the Poverty Row runs, even, even those are a lot of fun. Lugosi, you know, the Devil Bat, I often say is my favorite of the uh, public domain like, out of all the movies and the, those box sets, you get those uh, Mill Creek sets. The Devil Bat's the one I always go back to. Um, so there were a lot of fun ones. But then uh, Return of the Vampire is one of the Columbia movies. Um, and some of those were good, too. Yeah, from 1943, Columbia throws their hat into the monster ring. Is this the first monster movie they tried to do? I believe it is. I, I know prior to that, they did uh, a lot of Boris Karloff vehicles, like oh, The Book okay. Man Will Get You and um, The Man They Could Not Hang and stuff like that, which those, those are really awesome. Mm-hmm. I really like The Man They Could Not Hang. That, that's just a really cool revenge story. Mm-hmm. And Karloff is always great. But um, yeah, I think it, it is their first monster movie, I believe, because um, it's before they started working with Sam Katzman, really. And uh doing the stuff with him. So, yeah, I, I do know it's the first uh, vampire movie to show a vampire melting yes. on screen. <laughs> That's never been done before. Just, uh, just for a second, you see at the very end, a little bit of disintegration. I wish that shot had lingered just a little bit longer. I know. <laughs> but it, it's a step in the uh, the hammer direction. It's strong um, uh, echoes of uh, Christopher Lee. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, melting. <laughs> true, true. Which, as a kid, that was my favorite part of any vampire movie, uh, was how are they going to kill the vampire, you know? And Death by Sunlight is the most dramatic. <laughs> yeah, when I saw Return of the Vampire, I think I was like 10 when I saw that. And, uh, yeah, that was great. Uh, I think that was the first time I ever saw that. So that made an impact. Nice. Now, this film also is the first time you see a werewolf and a vampire working together. Now, this movie did come out the same year as Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, so it's not exactly this, the first time you see a couple of iconic monsters on screen together. It came out the same year, a little bit after Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. But to see a vampire and werewolf together, 
This is the first time. Yeah, it's the first time. And then, of course, later, Paul Nashi would really kind of run with that <laughs> in his movies. But, uh, yeah, this is the one that kind of started the whole vampire-werewolf feud um, that still goes on today. <laughs> True, yeah. I mean, we still see it now with... Oh, the gods help me, Twilight or uh, <laughs> Underworld. I guess there's another Underworld movie coming. So you still see that today. I do like that from the very beginning, there is a vampire at the top of the food chain. And then the werewolf is the subservient type. And there is a little bit of struggle there. I like that it was established here. Well, Andreas is probably the best character in the movie, actually. I, wow. I like his art. Yeah, I like his arc a lot. You know, with him, he's, he's almost like a, a, a Renfield type character, which kind of makes me believe that they changed him into a werewolf last minute or something to kind of avoid universal harping on them a little. Because he acts like Renfield a lot. There is a lot, especially near the beginning. Yeah, I could see that. And I agree with you. The arc that he goes on seems to be the greatest of all the characters in the film. Yeah, he's just struggling with um, Tesla, you know, Mm -hmm. telling him what to do and you know, basically fighting over his own soul, you know, so he's like, I don't know, he seems to be in more danger than any of, any of the other people in the movie. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty much damned that he's struggling against that, but I, I like him, though, because he's, he's a little more like Renfield than uh, Larry Talbot. He doesn't have a lot of similarities to Larry Talbot, other than, you know, the sympathetic, but... He doesn't strike me as like a Larry Talbot clone, exactly. So No, he, he is a, a totally different character, and I liked that a lot about this character as well. And I don't know how much of that is Matt Willis's portrayal. I don't know how much of that is the script or the direction. But up until this point, the most popular werewolf was you know the Larry Talbot, the Wolfman from Universal. And this is not a Talbot clone. This is its own character. It looks unique. And I know a lot of people kind of go back and forth on how it looks. I'm okay with the look of the, the monster design, the makeup. I, I like him a lot. Okay, good, good. <laughs> we're, we're on the same page there. Yeah. He's a different type of werewolf. He's a different character altogether. And I really think Matt Willis deserves a lot of credit for that in this film. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's the, the makeup man, um, Clay. Clay Campbell? Yeah, Clay Campbell, yeah. He also did the same makeup in um, the Three Stooges short. Idle Rumors, and then again, there's Sam Katzman movie, The Werewolf mm-hmm. from 56. Uh, those all have the same makeup design as that werewolf. So, Is this the first time he did that, or did the Three Stooges one come first, you know? This is the first time he oh, did okay. it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, it's the first time he did it. So that's kind of cool. You have your universal Wolfman. The Jack Pierce one has a very distinct look. And then you have essentially the Columbia Wolfman. They're just very different. I kind of like the black shiny nose that he has. It looks wet. It looks like a dog's nose would look. You know, He looks like a dog. I hate to say it. I I think he's kind of cute looking sometimes. (laughs) Uh, He looks like kind of like a a mean Yorkshire Terrier a little bit (laughs) with his mustache. But I like the look. It's a, it's very different than the Wolfman. It's it's really almost more radical than the Wolfman because uh, Wolfman is mostly Cheney's face. You have the beard that goes around the circumference of the head and then the fake nose, you know. But this one, he's got the black nose, full-on mustache, pointy ears. No, it's a it's a really radical-looking makeup in comparison. <laughs> but I, I think it... <laughs> I'll take my wolf men any way I can get them now. Well, that's true. <laughs> 
I just like seeing Wolfman of all shapes and forms. <laughs> <laughs> I also like that this Wolfman is in control of his facilities. He's able to have a conversation. He's able to plan and plot and, and do things. He's not just an animal. He actually speaks very eloquently. Uh, there, there's a moment in the film where he's going through Dr. Bruckner's personal belongings, and he's describing the contents He's like, one wallet? And he's very jovial about it as he's reading off all the things that he stole from this guy. Yeah. And it's, it's very amusing. It's a very different werewolf than you'll ever see in any other movie. Um, but I, I like him, though. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. I like him a lot as well. I like that it's completely different than what we've seen before, although there are some things in this movie that do smack of Universal, and obviously Bela Lugosi is... You called him Dracula by accident earlier, and... He's Dracula. He's Dracula. <laughs> he's Dracula. I, I'm okay with that, though, you know? <laughs> I, mean, what, I wouldn't take him any other way, you know? <laughs> true, true. In fact, in the film, he was supposed to be Dracula. And I yeah, made a joke pretty- earlier about Universal suing us. Universal got their hackles up and said no. Oh, yeah, and you could actually see it. I watched the movie a couple times, and I was trying to point out different parallels where where it could have been a sequel to Dracula. The biggest one is in the opening of the movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like an abbreviated version of the Dracula, pretty much. You have the first, like, five minutes is essentially the plot of Dracula wrapped up in, like, five minutes, ten minutes, and then he dies, and then Return of the Vampire, you know. But uh, there's some interesting parallels, like even, for instance, uh, Nikki's uh, fiancé, his name is John. You know, so it's like, ah, oh, is this like Jonathan Harker? <laughs> exactly. Nikki even has some um, traits that come from Mina, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the novel Dracula, because in the novel Mina, you know, she's damned by Dracula, and uh, she constantly mentions, you know, being unclean, you know, because she was tainted by Dracula's blood, and um, there's kind of a little hint of that in this when uh, she's bitten, and she's basically saying that she's not worthy for her fiancé and stuff, and that he shouldn't know, you know, that she's afraid she's becoming a vampire and stuff. I I saw that as something strong echoes of uh, Dracula there. There are quite a few. One of the more interesting things about this movie, actually, and it was driving me nuts until I I looked it up, was uh, in the opening credits, Mm -hmm. it said the writer was Kurt Newman. Yeah. Why does that name sound so familiar? And then I I looked him up. He had directed uh, The Fly, Kronos, uh, Rocket Ship XM. She-Devil. He did do (laughs) She-Devil. Yeah. So he's he's quite a name, so it's kind of funny seeing him so early on. Looking into it further, he had actually written a script treatment for Dracula's Daughter. That's just kind of funny because Dracula's Daughter is, is a direct sequel to Dracula 2. Mm-hmm. So it's like he really wanted to do his Dracula sequel one way or another. <laughs> he's sure, going sure. to make that happen. I think I read somewhere, and I, I wish I could find it on my... I don't have access. I mean, to get access to all my monster magazines right now. I remember reading a synopsis or a breakdown of a screenplay for The Return of Dracula that felt like it had a lot of elements that ended up in this movie. Oh, man. Was that Universal or? 
you know, I don't remember. I wish, like I said, I wish I could find the magazine, but maybe by the time I get this episode out, I will have found it. But <laughs> I need to go through and, and see if I can find that because I really feel like this is such a strong contender for a Dracula film. How amazing would it have been if Lugosi could have been just called Dracula and this could have been part of oh, that, that canon? It's sad that Universal had such a stranglehold on the character names because, I mean, even at the time, I think Dracula was in the public domain, the novel, right? Yeah, the character of Dracula was in the public domain at that point, and anybody technically could have made a Dracula movie. But, you know, the film business is still pretty young at this point. Entertainment law, I don't know what it was like back then, but if Universal is puffing out their chest and threatening to sue, I don't think you want to go yeah, against that beast. So. Play yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and also having Lugosi in the role, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> we know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not like, uh, yeah, Hammer later, which even when Hammer was doing the uh, their adaptations, they were told they couldn't use anything that wasn't in the novel. So I, I can imagine it being pretty tough as a screenwriter trying to work around those um, obstacles. Exactly. It's funny, though, when you look back at it, because... Didn't a couple of the earlier Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movies come out from a different studio other than Universal? So they were doing the exact same thing. Maybe, maybe they didn't care about Sherlock Holmes as much. Well, true, true. That's that's a shame. No, those those Rathbones are are great. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone back and watched quite a few of those, and I still need to pick them up. Oh, they're good. A few on some of those sets, but yeah, I wouldn't mind having all of them. <laughs> See, that's the curse of being a monster kid. We just want them all. Even if we're only going to watch them once in our lifetime, we want to have the whole set. Well, there's something I've I've realized about monster kids is that we like to collect things. That we do. And that, that seems to be a shared trait uh, with everyone that I meet is, oh, what do you got in your DVD collection <laughs> or your Blu-ray collection? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you compare notes. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that. I didn't have access to my monster movies magazines right away. And that's because we had to do some reorganizing here, not not to get too off track, but we had a leak in our ceiling and we had to move everything out of the oh. living room into the living room from the bedroom and the place is a wreck right now. But oh, one of my big projects, the first project I undertook when I decided to reorganize everything, reorganized my movie collection. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You know, boxes and boxes of books from the bedroom. Eh, whatever. I want to get my movies ready to go. <laughs> well, when I when I clean my house, that's the first thing I start with. Yes. I dust, I dust the movies first, and then if I get around to cleaning the rest of the house. Uh, <laughs> yep. I would actually say it, it's funny. Uh, Return of the Vampire kind of out universals universal at times. Um, I, you know, you made that comment earlier how it's better than a Universal movie, and I wanted to get back to that, so thank you for bringing that up. I agree. Well, because you you get to that cemetery set, you know, wow. and that, that forest, and, you know, I always thought that the wolf, the, the, the forest and the wolf man is still my favorite movie forest of all time. It, it looks like something out of a fairy tale. It's like, you know, when you're watching the wolf man, you can imagine, here's Larry Talbot. And then if it panned over, Snow White would be running away, you know, because it's the same forest from Snow White. Wow, yeah. The Wolfman Forest embodies, like, everything magical about fantasy and horror. It's so perfect. But this one takes it almost a step further, in a way, because the the trees are much more craggy, and it's really a creepy-looking forest. And then you combine it with the, the cemetery that... With every grave 
seemingly knocked over, which there's a reason for it. But I like to believe it would have been like that even if uh, the Germans hadn't come and <laughs> bombed it. It's just an ancient, decrepit old uh, cemetery. When you think about the classic cemetery scenes from a lot of these movies, obviously you go to Frankenstein or Bride of Frank. You know, Frankenstein's cemetery is iconic, even though it looks like it's on a stage. I mean, it, it looks like part of the appeal of it. Agreed. This cemetery, though, this I don't know if it's just the layers and layers of fog or what. The moving camera, perhaps, because in the 40s they were able to move the camera around a little bit more. There's something about this cemetery scene. It's right up there. It, like you said, out Universal's Universal. Yeah, this one because you mentioned the one from Frankenstein and even the Wolfman. They look like sets, but that's part mm-hmm. of the magic of them. Sure. Uh, but this one, yeah, you're right. This this one looks like a place that uh, you could be, like maybe in the back roads of uh, some place out in the middle of nowhere and stumble upon this place and uh, not want to be there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Or want to be there, depending on what kind of person you are. I, I would want to be there. I yeah. I, <laughs> you forget your audience, sir. Yeah. Yeah. We, we want to hang out. Take pictures, pose a little bit. Yeah. Make sure you come back here in a couple of days for our continued conversation with Ron about the movie, The Return of the Vampire. I am having a lot of fun editing that piece. I had a lot of fun recording that piece. And of course, I had a lot of fun watching the movie. It is one of my favorite Lugosi films. And like I said, you can just never get enough Bela. Coming up next weekend, not this weekend, but next weekend here in the Portland, Oregon area is the Rose City Comic Con, September 19th and 20th. Now, Monster Kid Radio is not there in any kind of official capacity. We're not on a panel. I'm not there as press. I'm just going there as a fan, and I'm going to be going on September 20th. That's Sunday, because there are a number of panels there that I'm interested in checking out. Specifically, I'm going to go to the Monsters of Podcasting panel, which is happening on Sunday morning from 10.30 a.m. to 11.20 a.m. What I'm really looking forward to, though, is Sunday afternoon from 1.30 to 2.20. KaijuCast is presenting the Giant Monster Happy Challenge. That's right, it's a game show about kaiju movies, and I can't wait to see how this thing plays out with Kyle, Jeff, Brian, Rachel, and Dave from the Kaiju cast. That will be a lot of fun. So like I said, I'm going to be there on Sunday. If you're going to be there, track me down. I'd love to meet you. I'll be the big guy wearing the Monster Kid radio shirt. I'm hard to miss. That's in September. Beginning of October is the HP Lovecraft Film Festival here in Portland. It's the 20th annual event, October 2nd through the 4th. And yeah, I'm going to all three days of that. I wouldn't miss it for almost anything because it's just such a great time. Brian and Gwen have been rocking it ever since they took over the festival, and I can't wait to see what they've got lined up. There has not been any announcements yet regarding panels, but I do know that I am a panelist there, so I will be there in some sort of official, quote-unquote, I just said air quotes, capacity. And, of course, I'll have my recorder there as well. I know Chris McMillan's going to be there. He's also a panelist, so you'll get to see him if you come out to the festival. He's also hard to miss. And I mean that in a good way, Chris, just, just saying. <laughs> anyway, it's going to be a good time. I can't wait for this event. And if you're interested in checking that one out, CthulhuCon.com. Of course, the Living Dead Horror Convention is happening in November. And there's one guest that hasn't been announced yet, but I know that this person is confirmed. And as soon as I announce who this person is, I know that Monster Kid Radio listeners are going to be excited to know that I've got potentially an event planned at the convention involving this person. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. And as soon as that announcement goes live, well, you know, I'll be talking about it here on Monster Kid Radio. (laughs) 
Got a couple of voicemails come in. Why don't we go ahead and dive into those next? I am going to play these two back-to-back, and then I'll respond to both. You'll hear why here in a second. Hey, Derek. Steve Sullivan here. Stephen D. Sullivan calling again. It's almost like I'm calling regularly now. We'll, we won't hold me to it, but we'll see. Anyway, I'm calling because I uh, was just inspired to rewatch The Green Slime. Thanks to you guys talking about it on the podcast, and I enjoyed it again. I was uh, doing other work while I was uh, watching it, so not paying complete attention, but I counted seven on-screen deaths by the end of the film. There were five in that early scene where the green slime breaks loose on the space station. Then there was one later of... The, uh, a character that gets trapped and then untrapped and the slime takes over. And then, of course, there's a final one near the end of the movie. So I counted seven. I won't swear that I didn't miss any because, like I said, I was doing other stuff while I watched it. But that's what I got. I was surprised that none of you on the show mentioned that the green slime is the official slash unofficial first fifth movie in the Gamma 1 series, the Gamma 1 movies, which were made by uh, Antonio Margaretti, uh, who did a, a lot of interesting other films, did all four of the original Gamma 1 movies, apparently in the same year, at least according to the quick research I did. They are, number one, Wild Wild Planet, number two, War of the Planets, number three, War Between the Planets, Thanks so much, U.S. guys, for making that one so distinct from the previous one. And number four, the Snow Devils. So the hook between the two is, or the the whole set of them is, besides Margaritian directing the first four, was that they were all produced by the same couple of guys, who I guess were Italian. I don't remember their names. And in a way, the green slime just fits right in with those other four. I mean, we even have the space ship that's or the space station that's called what gamma three and i think it's gamma one in wild wild planet it's been a while since i've watched those the first two are i've seen them on tcm several times i think they were available from warner archives i know that the snow devils which is the fourth one is available from warner archives because that's the edition i have and the third one, War Between the Planets, why they couldn't name this something slightly different from the second one, I don't know, is available on a twofer with Creation of the Humanoids, which is also worth seeing. Anyway, if you like Green Slime, you might like these other ones. They're a little more loosey-goosey, they're very low budget, they're all shot back to back to back to back, but they've got a lot of cool, goofy sets, a lot of 60-second sensibility, a lot of interesting low-budget special effects and stuff. They're Overall, they're a lot of fun to watch. And, boy, if they don't remind you of the Green Slime, I don't know what movies you're watching, because, like I said, Green Slime, the unofficial fifth entry in the Gamma 1 series. Check it out. Enjoy it. Have a great week. See you on Monster Kid Radio. Bye. Hello, Derek. Joe Wyden here just commenting on the last couple of podcasts. Uh, I got to tell you, I'm so glad you covered The Green Slime. I've always liked that movie. You know, it's funny. It's a film that I just recently discovered. Uh, well, not recently, probably in the last six years or so. Uh, it, it, it's a fun movie. It really is. Uh, you, you guys did such a great job talking about it. But, 
you know, I just wanted to mention a couple uh, quick things. When you were talking, I think, I don't know exactly what you said. You, you wanted to see more of this Gamma One universe or whatever. I think something like that. You said, actually, there is more to this universe. Because that Gamma One, although not they're not directly related, they're not really sequels or, you know, but that Gamma One space station shows up in a couple of movies. And th- Green Slime is the only one... Um, that uh, was it was like a uh, a multi studio production, you know. But uh, out of Italy, they did a couple of more of those Gamma One series movies: uh, Wild Wild Planet, War of the Planets, War Between the Planets, and the Snow Devils. They were all part of that Gamma One series. They, now they were all directed by the same guy, uh, Antonio Margheriti. That Green Slime was the only one that he didn't wasn't involved with. So there's actually like five of those Gamma One movies. So if you're interested, um, I know they're available. Uh, you can find them. I think War Between the Planets. I actually have a copy of that. I came across it. It was on a double bill with uh, Creation of the Humanoids. If you have never seen Creation of the Humanoids, that is a definite definite movie that uh, could be talked about on a podcast because that, in my opinion, is a very grown-up sort of B-movie. It's really very, very good, Creation of the Humanoids. Uh, anyway, uh, I think you guys just did a really good job on Green Slime. There's one other thing I wanted to uh, to mention. If you look really close, there is a couple of scenes with some uh, actors that we've seen before in the background. Now, you mentioned there's a lot of Supporting class, a lot of background actors. Yeah, there is, man. And I didn't know that about the military calling them in to do to do extra work. But there, if you look really close in one or two scenes, especially the scene in that you know that space age disco where they're all after they destroy the meteor. If you look carefully, her hair color is different. It's dark. Dancing. There's like two, one or two quick spots. Is Linda Miller from King Kong Escapes. She is in that movie as an extra, and I believe she might be in the background in one of the hospital scenes later on in the film, okay? But yeah, if you look close, Linda Miller is in there. Another actor that shows up, now he actually has a couple of speaking parts in the film, is uh, Robert Dunham. Robert Dunham had did a ton of work for uh, Toho, and I understand he actually was part of a casting agency that got extras for like American extras or uh, uh, foreign extras in the Toho films, and he also appeared in quite. A, he has a huge role in uh, uh, Duggar, the space monster. Uh, he plays a character called Mark Jackson, kind of like a secret agent, diamond thief. I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen that film, and he also plays the the leader of the underground world of Cetopia in Godzilla vs. Megalon. That is Robert Dunham. And he has quite a big, uh, like I said, quite a big part in uh, The Green Slime as an extra. He has a lot of, quite a few speaking parts, things like that. But, uh, you know, just a little, couple of little things to watch out for next time you watch the movie. And I know you'll be watching it next, <laughs> another time. But, uh, yeah, I, I really like The Green Slime. In fact, I don't own it. I don't own a copy of it. But uh, Turner Classic does run that once in a while. I actually have a copy of it on my DVR probably about two years now. And I haven't erased it. I do have to pick up the DVD. But I understand it's a bare-bones DVD, so there's no extras on it. I'll just keep it on my DVR for a little while longer. But yeah, I discovered that movie about six or seven years ago. And I know Turner Classic ran it. And then they ran it a few more times, and I ended up recording it. And 
I want to say in the past five years, I'd say they probably run that movie three, maybe four times, late night, early morning. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think you guys did a great job with uh, Green Slime. And as I mentioned, uh, that War Between the Planets, that double bill with uh, a film called Creation of the Humanoids, look into that film, Derek. That is an excellent film to talk about on a podcast. But uh, anyway, I think you guys did a great job. Keep up the great work, and I'll keep listening. Take care. Bye. Steve and Joe, thank you for calling in. And yeah, I'm familiar with those movies. I actually played some of the trailers for a couple of those films earlier in this episode. I have not seen them, however. I thought I had, but I haven't yet. And at one point, I reached out to a fellow podcaster about being on the show to talk about at least one of these movies. And that may still happen down the line. I want to see them. I've seen the trailers. I've even got a soundtrack album that's just called Science Fiction from RCA Records, and it is a compilation of film scores from those four films. The trailers look cool, and eventually I'll get to them here on Monster Kid Radio, I'm sure. I will be going back to rewatch Green Slime again. Such a fun ride. And I'll keep an eye out for those extras, Joe. Linda Miller being in the background. I love King Kong Escapes, one of my favorite Toho films. And then Robert Dunham back there as well. I'll keep an eye out for those. Steve, I'll recount the number of deaths for you. Unless you watch it again before I do, and then maybe you can recount it and give us an update. As far as creation of the humanoids go, Joe, you talked about that, and Steve, you mentioned it briefly as well. No, I've not seen that one either. But that trailer looks and sounds amazing. Creation of the humanoids. Out of the atomic war came the perfect man, the humanoids, man's own creation. Physically and mentally perfect. Created to serve their masters, men and women. But could man compete with this creation, the perfect man? You love that, that machine? I love Pax. She's dedicated to keeping me happy. And I am happy. The robots are machines. They must be made to look like machines. The perfect man, created by man, becomes man's worst enemy. Proceed! The most provocative story ever filmed. The most unusual story ever filmed. You must see it to believe it. The creation of the humanoids. The perfect man. If you want to call in like Steve or send an audio file like Joe did, or just send an old-fashioned email, you can find our contact information at monsterkidradio.net. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. These are not the only things you're going to find at our website, though. Everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes is right here. We have a link to our Facebook group where you can go join the group and get involved with conversations happening with other Monster Kid Radio listeners and maybe even participate in the... I'd say monthly, but it's been going for about a month and a half now. There's a regular poll that's going on in the Facebook group. So if you are a Facebook user... well. Head on over and get involved with that. You can also subscribe to the Monster Alley Checkpoint monthly e-newsletter from our website. It's over on the right. Just punch in your email address, hit subscribe, and you're in. Near the end of the month, you'll get a special email newsletter from Monster Kid Radio headquarters. Keeping you up to date with everything going on with MKR as well as Monster Alley Media. 
Got some monster movie trivia in there, a column that I call The Creature Connection. It's just a lot of fun to put together, and I think a lot of people are having fun reading it. So if you want to get involved with that, well, head over to our website. Now, if you are a patron of Monster Kid Radio, you actually get the Monster Alley Checkpoint newsletter at least a few days earlier than everybody else if you pledge at the Toho level or higher. Of course, you can pledge as low as 35 cents a month to help support Monster Kid Radio. 35 cents is how much the very first issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland costs. So we have that in there. You can pledge a dollar, two dollars, three, five, or even ten and get yourself some sweet rewards along the way. We are holding steady right now with 15 patrons. Can we get it up to 20 by the end of the year? Check out the milestones, see if there's something in there that catches your interest, and maybe you can help us hit at least the How to Make a Monster Kid Radio milestone. Can we do it? Well, with your help, I think so. Also on our website, you can find links to every song that's appeared here on the show. Every one of those bands has given us permission to play their music, so support those bands, let them know that you heard them here on the podcast. Now, in a couple of days, we're going to come back for our continued conversation with Ron Nelson about the movie The Return of the Vampire. I've had a blast with that. Ron, thank you so much for bringing your enthusiasm about this movie to the show and just appearing on the podcast. I know Ron's got some projects potentially coming up in the future. Best of luck to Ron on those. Thanks for calling in, Joe and Steve, and thank you for listening, for liking Monster Kid Radio on Facebook, for sharing the posts, for retweeting the tweets, and even giving us a review in the iTunes store. Your support of the podcast is greatly Appreciated. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Riding the Black Ash. That belongs to the band The Lurids, and it's on their album Surfing One Hell of a Wave. You can find them on Facebook or Bandcamp. Just follow the link in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net and check them out. I'm Derek M. Cook. I can't wait to come back here in a couple of days for more of The Return of the Vampire. Talk to everybody on episode 234.